Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you have uh, tuned in to be a part of our online worship experience as we continue in this series called Unshakable Hope. And uh, we really are uh, in great need of the message uh, from both uh, this book as it points us toward the scriptures and encouragement from each other as we remember these great truths. So we all, we, we all know the Pope Mobile. All right, the Pope Mobile, which what I didn't know until this week was that there was more than one. So I actually thought that wherever the Pope traveled, he would take the, the Pope Mobile, would kind of go with him. But of course, that doesn't even make sense. It would make sense that there's lots of different Pope Mobiles. And we're often most familiar with, I think, the Mercedes version. It's uh, often the one uh, that is seen, but there are others. There's actually a Range Rover. Pope Mobile, which looks pretty cool, but my favorites are more toward like the American-made ones, like the Ford actually made a Pope Mobile at one point, uh, which was cool, but the I think if I ever get one myself, it's going to be the Jeep uh, Pope Mobile, because my goodness, that would be just so absolutely cool, and um, so yeah, that's, that's the Pope Mobile, which of course we know is designed to protect the Pope from, uh, from the elements and now, of course, tragically uh, from violence. And, you know, I think there are many of us as followers of Christ that really do want to live our lives in a Pope-mobile-like bubble where we can just live free of any sort of risk or harm, or trouble. But the Christian life isn't about taking a joy ride in the Pope Mobile. And I suspect that if any of you had ever sort of lived under that subtle deception, that you were quickly coming to realize that it simply isn't true, that we cannot and will not live free of harm, challenge, or risk. I imagine the stark reality of this is becoming more and more real to you. You know, a lot of us like to memorize uh, Bible verses, and I would encourage all of you guys to memorize Bible verses. In our discipleship groups, it's a normal part of it. In fact, we're doing a whole small group series on this same topic, Unshakable Hope, and a lot of folks are adding a Bible memory component to it. They're memorizing some of the great promises of the Bible. But here's a promise that doesn't make it into many of our lists. It's John 16, 33. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You should add that to your memory verses because that 
is uh, really just deeply encouraging. Thank you, Jesus, for that encouragement. Largely, he's telling us, storms will come. That's a promise. Now, some storms are storms that we make ourselves, right? We kind of bring them on uh, on ourselves. And so, you know, maybe we, you know, we are uh, engaging in risky behavior. We're taking advantage of people. We're grabbing things that aren't ours. We're living lives without discipline. And so we might drink too much or eat too much or sloth too much. And so we bring a storm into our lives, but other storms are thrust upon us. I'm pretty sure that none of you had anything to do with coronavirus. And I would imagine that most all of you are even practicing social distancing. So that's great. Keep that up, which means you're not even, you're not even spreading this thing. And yet, we find ourselves in the midst of this storm. It's still swirling all around us. And so there are jobs lost and there are loved ones who are sick and there are relationships that are frayed and there's anxiety that this is becoming some sort of a bizarro new reality, maybe for many, many years to come. You didn't ask for this, you didn't create this, and yet you still find yourself in that storm. And there are yet other storms that it seems Jesus himself presses us into. That's a troubling one for us. But there's an account in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus and his disciples, they were doing this whole lot of of great ministry. And then after it, Jesus wants some alone time. And so in Matthew 14, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This is, it seems a little bit odd. I mean, Jesus doesn't normally send the disciples off in one direction and he goes off in another direction. It occasionally happened, but uh, it, it does seem a little bit odd. But what they didn't know is that he was sending them directly into a deadly storm. So you can imagine what that would be like. I mean, these guys were literally doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and a storm threatened to kill them. So you could put yourself there on the boat. They're exhausted after many days of doing what Jesus had told them to do. Now they find themselves in the storm. And of course, you know, the seasoned fishermen among them would be sort of keeping an eye on things and noticing the wind and the change in the weather. They might cast a few concerned glances back and forth to each other. And, and then all of a sudden the waves start to compound and more nervous looks among the seasoned fishermen. And then the rain starts coming and pelting. And before they know it, they are in a fight for their lives against the elements. They were doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. It must have raised so many questions like, what is going on? Everything seemed to be moving in such a great direction. Finally, there is this newfound Messiah and we're with him and we're doing this great stuff. I mean, how could this, this be the end of that story? I mean, is this where, are we going to end up dead here in the middle of the sea? I also wonder if one of the questions continuing to plague them in those moments is where, where is Jesus in this moment? Where is he? 
Why would he leave us at such a critical time? So you're working hard to raise your family and you're doing what you, you, you know Jesus has called you to do. You're showing compassion on the less fortunate and you're heavily invested in doing the work of God in the world and you're, you're faithful in your time with Jesus and you're learning to be other-centered rather than self-centered. And you're doing all of the things that you know that Jesus is calling you to do and then he sends you headlong into crisis after crisis. And where is Jesus in all of this, this wind and rain and fear and terror? Where is he? Well, of course, he's on the mountain, far above the squall. And what is he doing up there? Because we sort of need him down here. But of course, it goes on to tell us what he was doing. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. See, Jesus was doing exactly what we needed him to do. He was on that mountain praying, interceding for us. He was doing the very thing that we would want him to do in the moments of our great distress. Prayer is a funny thing. You know, most everyone prays at some time in their lives, and most people pray pretty regularly, monthly, weekly, many even daily. And almost no one will refuse prayer, not even the skeptic. And you can test this out. You can try it this week. You could actually uh, go ahead and, uh, you know, when, when somebody mentions one of their troubling situations or a sickness in their family, just say, you know what, let me pray for you. And most everyone will say, sure. Because even the skeptic will say, well, but, I mean, it, it can't hurt, right? I mean, and, if, and it's possible that it could help. And so prayer is one of these funny things because it's almost as if somewhere deep in the soul, there is a longing in every single one of us to tap into the power of the unseen world and to somehow draw it into our world so that we can make our circumstances and our situations somehow better. There is this deep longing in the human soul for that. And here we see Jesus himself praying for his people. You know, sometimes people will want you know, people to pray, but like they'll, the, what you really want is you want the really holy people to pray, right? You want those people who are sort of like, like head and shoulders above the rest of us. Those are the people you really want to pray. That's why so many people line up for hours and hours and hours to have the, the Pope bless them because they have this idea in their head that, you know, he's kind of like, you know, the one that you, it would be really important to have him pray. Or you've got some, some saintly well, old grandmother who you know spends hours every day on her knees praying. You're like, you know, that's kind of who I want praying for me. And here we have the very son of God, the righteous one, praying for his people. And this is a promise that actually shows up again and again in the scriptures. I just kind of run through a whole series of these kinds of verses, these divine sorts of prayers. 
We see one of them here where, that, where Jesus actually prays for us when we have sinned and when we need forgiveness. It's 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our advocate. And you know what? Maybe, maybe you're struggling a little bit here in quarantine life. Or maybe the pressure's starting to get to you. Maybe you're arguing with your wife or you're frustrated with your kids and you're getting snippy and the, the emotions are getting frayed. Or, or kids, maybe you're frustrated with your parents. I mean, listen, by the way, just for the record, students, we, we don't know your math. We, we don't. We don't know it. We don't understand it. We can't do it. You're already way ahead of anything that we often had to do in school. And so you got to do something else. Check out like another website or something. We just, and and we, we're sorry you're frustrated with us. We actually can't do much about it. But, you know, this happens. We're here in the midst of quarantine life and all the stress, all the pressures, all the new stuff, the anxiety. And there's this, there's this effect that causes us now to be drawn toward sin. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. He also prays when our enemy, Satan, wants to destroy our faith. Luke chapter 22, Jesus speaking, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. What is he's praying that his faith will not fail? One of our, our quarantine projects we did at home was we built a sifter. Uh, after, you know, we've got some construction going on at the house, or I guess we had construction going on at the house, not anymore. And uh, anyway, the, they, they dug up a bunch of the, the dirt and the rock and the soil and all that, and it's all mixed in these big piles around our yard. And so we have to sift uh, the rocks and the soil and kind of like sort it out so that we can use them in different ways. And so, and that's really the, the image that's, that, that he's kind of pressing here is that there's, there, there are these tools, right, that we use to sift different things. And you can sift all sorts of things. He's talking about wheat in particular. But the imagery is of taking something and, and, and rubbing it through like a metal grate. And then, you know, part of it will fall away and the other part won't fall away. And you gather up the part that you want. And, and Satan comes and he asks to sift us. He wants to grate you against metal. And he wants to, to see what's left over. He wants to see. He wants to take all of the junk and claim that as his. And he's hoping that there's very little left that's good that God gets to claim as his. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, no, listen, I'm going to pray so that your faith won't fail. Jesus is praying for you. We also see how the spirit of God does this when we're weak. In Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, which is so valuable at times like this, because if you're overwhelmed with worry, that's, that's a weakness. If anxiety is giving you darker dreams than you've ever had in your life, these are weaknesses that we are struggling under. If you're fatigued by this daily onslaught of bad news and frustrating policies. These are the weaknesses that are part of what's going on here and now in our lives. And so the Spirit of God comes and he, he lifts us up in our weakness. This verse goes on to say that we do not know what we ought to pray, but for the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Imagine that. 
the Spirit of God interceding because we don't even know what we ought to pray for. Many times during these days, you know, I sit down, it's time to pray, and I'm, I don't even know what to pray for sometimes anymore. I'm just so tired or I'm, I'm worn out or I'm just so distracted by, by so much going on. And it's difficult to even capture what's in my heart. And so every once in a while, I'll just sort of, I'll find some time, I'll sit alone and I'll just turn on some worship music and I'll just let the words of the worship song sort of just wash over me. And then in those quiet moments, I start to get a sense that like something is, is welling up in my spirit, in the turmoil of my soul. It, it somehow feels like the spirit is beginning to lift up prayers, wordless prayers. And I get to then rest in God's strength to know that the spirit is strengthening us in this way, even when we don't know what to pray for. We also know that Jesus prays for you when others want to condemn you. This is in Romans 8.34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also, what's this? Again, interceding for us. What I love about this, there's so many things you could say about this passage. It's an incredibly rich passage in this awesome context. But, but one of the things that is so powerful here is it's in the context of an amazing passage in all of Romans 8, actually, where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. No height, no depth, no principality, no power. Nothing in all of heaven, under the earth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so if you are feeling far from God, when you're feeling the guilt, when you're feeling condemnation, when you, inex- when you experience insecurity and doubt, Jesus is praying for you. He's standing in that, that gap, the gap between God the Father and us. And Jesus is standing in that gap. And he stands there when all others fail. Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And this is the key idea in this, in this context. He always lives. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, his, the pow- Jesus has the power of an indestructible life because of the resurrection, because he, he overcame death. He now has an indestructible life, and that indestructible life means that he will always live to intercede for us. You know, sometimes like, you know, every once in a while, people will, we'll be praying together as a church and, a, you know, as a group. And uh, every once in a while, like, I'll get a chance to pray with someone and they'll make some comment like, ooh, I get, you know, I get, I get the big guy, right? Because in their mind, like, I'm the closest thing to like a chief priest or something like that because of like, uh, you know, the way the churches are structured and things like that. And, and uh, you know, they somehow they think like I have like a direct line to God, Right. And uh, and uh, so and, and, and of course, I'm always honored to pray with anyone. It's a deep, deep privilege to be able to pray with any and every one of you. Uh, but I'm also cognizant of my own failures in this. There has never once been a time in my life where I have felt like I have prayed enough for all of you. 
never once in my life where I feel like I have prayed with enough faith or fervently enough that I have trusted enough that I have asked for for bigger dreams than than I could have imagined and sometimes you feel that and you're like oh I just you get overwhelmed with the inadequacy that we bring to this task of prayer but then I turn and I thank God that there is not a single day that someone isn't interceding for you. That Jesus himself isn't taking your name upon his lips to bring you into the very throne room of the Father. You know, this whole context here, it's about this indestructible life. And that's so important because, listen, there is, there is not a religious leader. There is no priest who is offering uh, absolution. There isn't a family member. There is not uh, some sweet old aunt who will pray as ceaselessly and unfailingly as Jesus prays for you. He's praying for you now. He's praying for you Always, and he knows exactly what to pray. And we know that his prayers are always in line with God's perfect will for your life. We want to do something a little bit different here in the middle of the message. I've got some other points I'm going to make here, but we want to take a, just a little, a little pause here in the middle. And, and we put together a, a little media that lists, kind of like lays out a whole handful of the prayers that, Je- that Jesus prays for you. And we want you to take just a few moments here. It's a little bit of a prayer exercise. And just let these prayers wash over you as we hear the prayers of the Savior, as we read the prayers of the Savior over our lives.
Jesus sent his disciples into the storm while he went on the mountain to pray. But that, of course, isn't where this ends because Jesus leaves the mountain. He walks through the foul weather. He does not let the distance that the ship is from the shore stop him. He walks on the water through the storm to the disciples who are fighting the wind and the waves. See, there isn't an obstacle that exists in this world that will stop Jesus from joining them in the midst of the storm where he does, in fact, calm the storm. And, I, you know, and for me, this, the, the picture that I paint, it's influenced by something that uh, I saw in Guam, which is where my wife is from. And so we, there's, it's kind of there's one side of the island has all these big cliffs, and, and you can stand up on these cliffs, and you can see out into the ocean just, it seems like, forever. And uh, there was this one time I'm standing up on this cliff, and, and out in the ocean I see this squall, this just nasty-looking little storm, dark clouds and some some thunderous-looking lights. You could see the waves, and oh, it's just a big mess out there. But, of course, here I am safely on this mountain. I can look down and see it and not feel uh, as if I was at any risk. And I sort of have this picture in my head that Jesus is up on this mountain, and he's above the squall, and, and maybe he can even see down into the, the Sea of Galilee and perhaps even a few of the boats that were struggling to get away from this storm. And it seems to me like, like Jesus, he sends us into this storm. But even in those moments, he is seeking our greatest good. And there is no doubt that Jesus himself will enter that storm with you and that there isn't an obstacle that can stop him. Not the weather as it beats against him as well, not the water, the distance, there is nothing that will separate him from you. And how do we know this? Because, see, this wasn't the only time that Jesus came down from the mountain and entered into our storm. This wasn't the only time. The theologians, they, they talk about this as the incarnation. So before Jesus came to earth, before he took the form of a baby, before the divine became enfleshed. That's what the incarnation is about. You have this, this picture. You have, you have God in heaven. You have Jesus, the second person of the Godhead in heaven. And he looks down upon the earth and he sees the storm that we have created because of our rebellion, because of our sin. And he isn't content to leave us on our own. And so here Jesus leaves the comfort and the peace and the security of heaven. And he enters our storm at the incarnation. He enters into our pain and into our heartache. And rather than let us die in the storm, Jesus goes through his own horrific Storm. He goes to the cross in order to save us from the ultimate storm that threatened us. That's how we know. See, not only does Jesus pray, but he acts on our behalf to save us in and through these storms. There's a beautiful picture 
uh, this moment in the early church. It was this young Jewish man named Stephen. He was one of the early followers of Jesus. And the church was very, very busy in those days. They had all sorts going on. They were trying to reach the whole city of Jerusalem, and they needed someone to help them run the food pantry at a time when food insecurity was very, very high. And Stephen was very well respected and uh, loved by the people. He was trusted by, by everyone. And so they, they put the responsibility, the care of the widows and the management of the food pantry in his very capable hands. And so later on, some years later, around 36 AD, history tells us that Stephen got into a debate with some of the religious leaders of the day. And they were so furious at him because they couldn't get him to stop talking about Jesus. That's what they wanted. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about all. And they were so furious, they decided that they would kill him. Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And he ran the food pantry, which, by the way, we've got a pantry. If any of you would, are thinking about, we're not, anyway, we'll talk more about that another time. But uh, he was running the food pantry, and they decide that they need to silence him. And so they grab him, they drag him out of the, st- the city, and they pick up stones to beat him lifeless. During this ordeal, something incredible happened. It's an act, it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was standing at the right hand of God. And, and what's so remarkable about this is that almost every time you see a picture of Jesus in heaven with the Father, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's the normal language that's used because, of course, He's sitting as a symbol, as a sign to us that his work was finished, that he came to earth, he he went to the cross, and that our salvation is now secure. And so in, in the ancient world, when the king could go home and sit after a great battle, he would sit upon the throne because now the work was done and the and the and the, the kingdom was now secure. So he could now sit. And yet when when the, the skies open, when Stephen sees a vision, Jesus is standing. I love this picture because I think it tells us that that when God's people are in trouble, when the storms rise up against us, when it's time to welcome us home, Jesus gets up from his throne and he stands and it's a picture of his, his constant intercession for us. You know, when we forget to pray, Jesus never forgets. When we can barely choke out our prayers because of the doubt and the heartache and the sin, Jesus, he never falters in his intercession for each and every one of you. So where is Jesus in your storm? Where is he? You might, you might ask this question, you might have wondered it many times, and, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus is getting up off of his throne, and he is stepping close to the Father, and he has your name on his lips. We may not see 
how all of these things will get resolved. And we're going to be troubled in so many ways and confused in many others. But the, the promises of the scriptures are clear. Christ is interceding for you. I'm going to ask that you would just join me as I offer up a prayer. Asking God to let our hearts dwell and relish these great truths. Lord, I'm just asking that you would do this incredible work in our hearts. That, Father, you would help us to trust what your scriptures tell us. Time and again, we struggle with doubt. We wonder where you are. We feel like we're going into all of these storms alone. We wonder where you are. We wonder what you're doing. Father, in those quiet moments, may we not take the silence as a sign that you are not there. May we take great comfort in knowing that we are able to be in the presence of the angels because our name is on the lips of Jesus as he prays to strengthen and encourage and to give us an unshakable hope. We want this, Lord, and we know that it'll work in us and through us as your spirit increases our faith in you. I pray for each and every person who's going through a storm, Lord, whether it be of their own making or whether it was thrust upon them, Lord, it's clear that you have allowed us into these storms, but you will not leave us alone. And I'm asking that that would cause our hearts to rejoice in you. Increase our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.